Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you and to look at your word and help us to understand what it is we're getting ready to read in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 24. We're continuing Jesus's message uh, just before he's going to have the Last Supper and get crucified. So we're looking at... Oh, well. It's just the way it's working out. <laughs> Verse 42. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known at, in what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be you ready also, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man comes. Who then is a faithful wise servant whom his Lord has made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season. Blessed is that servant whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find him doing. Verily I say unto you that he shall make him ruler over his goods. But if, but and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkard, the Lord of that servant shall come in the day when he looks not for him, and in that hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him a portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so remember we've been covering the, uh, Jesus talking about his coming, and that it would be suddenly, it would, that the time would be hard, that, uh, and, that, and it would be like the days of Noah. And then he continues, you know, that you don't know when he's coming. And this is the theme that Jesus kept bringing up. He brought out that we can know the signs. He told us what to look for. But he kept saying all, over and over again, no one knows the time. And it's kind of an amazing thing. If you've been in Christianity the length of time, you, you know there's all kinds of people who will start telling you when Jesus is coming. And some of them get pretty, pretty darn specific, not even just soon, but they'll, they'll give you all these verses and math equations, and they'll say, we know that he's coming on this day. And when that day comes and goes, they look like a fool, and everybody that follows them looks like a fool. And, you know, and if all you had to do is go, well, if you're saying that, you're not agreeing with Jesus, because Jesus says no man knows when. Now, we know we're getting closer, because we see the signs. But we don't know when he's coming. He could come before this Bible study's over. He could come in our kids' lifetime. He could come in our grandkids' lifetime. We don't know when he's coming, and we've got to keep that remembered all the time. How come is it that when things like that are so blatant when this is what it says that we don't really, we don't, we don't take it when it says? A couple of reasons. Number one, they sound so convincing. They will go through the Bible and they will give you hundreds of verses that will support their, their view taken out of context. Well, this is true. But when you have a charismatic leader who you've trusted saying these things, people tend to turn off their, their thought processes. And this is why I have said, I want everybody always to go to the scripture and verify what's said because I could go wrong somehow without meaning to. And I want people to know that they've searched out the scriptures. And, and what ends up happening is they'll go, well, my pastor says such and such. 
And I hear that kind of stuff all the time at the prison. Some of these guys come out with some really crazy things. And they go, well, my pastor has been teaching this. I'm going, well, what's he basing it on? Uh, and it's, it's bizarre some of the things they come up with. And some of it is because when you've been teaching for a long time and you're kind of running out of things to, to teach, you kind of try to sensationalize to keep people interested instead of going back to the basics again. One thing I have learned is if you keep going with the basics, people need the basics. It doesn't matter how long you've been following God, we tend to forget basic stuff. And then we build upon those basics and people will grow. And so we see this happening frequently. And I've, I've seen it. I've seen good, strong, solid teachers all of a sudden come up with some really bizarre teaching sometimes. And it's like, where did you come up with that? I don't understand it. And every once in a while, I'll even listen to pastors on the radio that I like and listen to that will say something that just, where in the world did you come up with that? You know, give me some, give me some definitions on where you, where you think about it, which is why we need to always be good students of the scriptures, good Bereans, study the scriptures, and make sure what you're being taught is accurate. And especially the more you listen to people, because you can get some very funny things taught if you're not careful. And here he says, if, you know, you do not know the hour. And then he goes into an example. He says, if the owner of a house knew what hour the thief was coming in, he'd be ready for him. I'm going to summarize it. You know, and isn't that true? You know, if you knew that your house was going to be robbed at 4 o'clock tomorrow, that was 43. You know, if you knew your house was going to be robbed tomorrow at 4 o'clock, and you knew it absolutely, you would make sure that somebody was there to make sure it didn't happen and that the person got caught. Yeah, but that's not the way you get robbed usually. You usually come home and it's like, oh no, my house has been broken into and, and everything's gone. And Jesus is just making the point, you know, if you knew when it was going to happen, you'd make sure you were prepared. You would not let it happen. And that's what he says in verse 44. Therefore, be ready in that hour because you do not know when the Son of Man comes. Is this, you think maybe Jesus is trying to get this stuck into people's minds because he knows that people are going to be in this whole idea of trying to figure out when he's coming. And believe me, I've heard so many messages on this. Uh, I've shared with you in 1987, everybody was excited because Jesus was coming because Israel had become a nation in 47 and, and the, the generation would not pass and a generation in the Bible was 40 years, so everybody was absolutely sure Jesus was coming in 87. Well, if he did, we missed it. <laughs> And I don't think I missed it 20 years ago. Uh, but, you know, we see this, or 30 years ago now, isn't it? <laughs> Later on I thought. Uh, but how easy it is, and, and people would come, and that answers your question, Billy. They will go and they'll point out all these different scriptures and say, see all these scriptures? We can tell you exactly when he's coming. And we need to be very careful with that and not let ourselves be deceived, because over and over Jesus said, you're not going to know. Now, we could know the season. We know that Israel became a nation, so it's going to be soon. We know that days are getting evil, so it's going to be soon. We see the idea of one world currency coming around. It's not the same as God's. It's not the same as God's. You know, Jesus said, I'm returning soon, and that was 2,000 years ago. Uh, God's perspective on soon is a lot different than our perspective on soon. And when you're an eternal being, soon can be a long time. So we want to be very careful about this, but it, you know, I'm, and I'm expanding this, be, be very careful in everything that you listen to because people can be very convincing. 
check out scriptures. I've, I've listened to pastors who have quoted scriptures to support their point, and I wrote them down, and I went back to look at them, and the scripture had nothing to do with what they're talking about. They just quoted a bunch of scriptures, assuming that nobody was ever going to look at it, and it made them sound like they were supporting their argument. And you go in, and you read it, and go, what in the world? That has nothing to do with what he was talking about. Chapter and verse. You just give a chapter, a book, a chapter, and a verse, and and not most pastors don't do that, but I have come across some who have done that, you know, just to make their point. And you go back, and go, that has nothing to do. And you read the context. Maybe I got the wrong verse, and you know, nothing. That, and then the other thing, of course, is read the context when they quote a verse, because it's real easy to take a verse out of context and make it say whatever you kind of want it want to say on it. So be very careful when you're listening to the pastors and teachers. Check out what it is they're teaching. Make sure. Now, the Holy Spirit will also tell you sometimes, you know, when you're listening to somebody and you're going, yes, that's right, that's right, it matches everything I've been taught. And then other times it's like, what in the world? I've got to start checking this one out. And you're, the Holy Spirit will teach you, say, check it, check it out. But, you know, we look at this, and, and Jesus says, you know, it doesn't, it, we don't know that time that he's coming. And then in verse 45, it says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom when his master has made him ruler over his house and gives him meat in his due season? So the master is supposed to take care of the person who's given charge of the servants is to take care of the other servants. And this is something we are to do one to another. Our job as Christians is to build one another up, edify one another, and help one another. We're a family, and we're supposed to be a family. And... Usually in a family, not everybody in the family has a problem at the same time. And the family is supposed to support each other. Now, in our day of nuclear families, we're not seeing as much of that support as we used to see in, in the old days. Now, it used to be that you lived within the same, usually at least within the same city and oftentimes on the same piece of property and same farm. You knew what was going on with your other family members and was able to help them. And he says, you know, the servant is to help. And God wants to see, find his servants helping. And said, verse 46, blessed is the servant whom his master, or whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find him doing, helping and serving and, and taking care of others. Really thinking about this, we talked about it just last night about, you know, being able to lose your salvation, not losing your salvation, and the whole idea of works. You know, the Bible talks a lot about works, and it works is what proves that we're saved because we... Our works are from God. And we've talked about this. When we are saved, we're in a relationship from God. He will change us, and we will do good works. Not because we're trying to please him, not because we're trying to earn salvation, but because we're his and he's ours, and we're becoming more like him, and we become like him. And this is what James says, you know, show me your faith by your, uh, without your works, and I'll show you my faith with, by my works. You know, he, James did not say you could not be saved without works. But you're sure not going to prove it to anybody. You know, if you don't have good works in your life, good righteous works in your life, you cannot prove to anybody that you're saved because you're living just like the world. And we've talked about this over and over. We will be changed. When we know God, we will change. We will become more loving, more caring, more more outgoing toward people and forgiving. We will help them. Uh, we will honor God and obey God just because of who he is in us. And those very acts will show that we know God. 
just as he says here, when they took care of one another, they're showing that they know him. They're being a good servant. Now, we've talked about this because how are we saved? And this is the most important thing we can talk about. We're saved by grace, not of works. So somebody can be saved without works, but they're not gonna be able to prove that they're saved. And most of them probably aren't. If there's no works, you're probably not saved, but that's between you and God. And I've shared with you, I treat people that don't, that I don't see works as if they're not saved, and I'm gonna to witness to them. I'm gonna treat them more like a non-saved person than a saved person, because my concern is, without works, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Uh, you know, the old the adages we have, where there's smoke, there's fire, where there's heat, there's some kind of you know, source of the heat. If somebody is a Christian without evidence of them being a Christian, then we have to say, are, are they? And they should be saying, am I? You know, am I really one of his children? Do I know him? Am I being changed? And if not, make it a commitment with him. Isn't there a part of the Bible that says where there's questions of the works you do, or, or what's that? Oh, in Isaiah 53, it says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. The things I can do in my own strength is, is nothing but worthless to God. So that, that's, there's a difference between that and, and works. What I am describing is not works towards salvation. It is God working through me, changing me, and my works are there to show that I am following God, and it's not for the wrong reasons. When you're, you're all my righteousness, if I'm doing things, I'm trying to show everybody how good I am. How, and this is what the Pharisees did. Look at, look at me. Look how good I am. I am following all these rules. I, I follow all these rules. I'm doing all these things. But their heart was not toward God. Their heart was for everybody to see their, their works. When a Christian is doing good works, their, their work is toward God, and they're going to do it whether somebody's watching them or not watching them. Okay? Uh, the Pharisees, if they were in their own house, would do whatever they wanted. They weren't, they weren't trying to, as long as nobody was going to catch them, they didn't care whether they did good or bad. Real change in your life works out that I am going to do right whether somebody's watching me, whether they see me, whether I get acknowledgement for it or not. Uh, a person who has been changed by God would be somebody who's going to tell the truth. And they're going to tell the truth no matter what they're doing and whether anybody's going to catch them or not. And they're not going to even make the littlest untruthfulness because they're saying, I want to be truthful. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be perfect in it, but we all probably know people that if they say they're going to do something, you know they're going to do it. If they speak something because, they, because of their, their love of the truth, you know that they're going to do it. Again, that comes down to who are you internally with God because I have lost jobs because I would not do something that was illegal. And I told my boss, no, I won't do it. And he goes, well, you're going to. And I'm going, well, no, then I won't have this job because it comes from the heart of who we are. Has God changed us? And is it something that I can say, yes, I can do this or no, I can't do this? If, it, if I am convicted by God that I can't do it, then I am going to lose whatever job it might mean losing or look bad to people or make people mad at me because I can't do whatever it is that they're asking me to do. And as God changes who we are, it becomes more 
real, again, not to try to impress people. You know, when I lost my job that one time, it did not impress my boss in any way, shape, or form that I lost my job. Okay, he was not happy that I would not uh, be untruthful. Uh, you know, that did not make him happy at all. He liked me as a worker, but he wanted to push this one incident, and I'm going, no, I can't do it. And truthfulness isn't the only area. I mean, it can be any, any area out there. Uh, what is it that keeps you honest or following God is him in you. And again, who are you even when nobody's looking, when it doesn't seem to matter? And we don't know what it is, but you can look at your life. What will you do in little situations that are, seem to be of no consequence? How many people will tell a lie to sell something? Lots of salesmen. That's why salesmen have such bad reputations. Because many of them will lie to people and say, no, usually not a huge monstrous lie, but little lies, hiding, hiding damage, hiding, hiding uh, you know, warranty disclaimers and all kinds of stuff. But what is it that is real to us? And this is where you kind of know where you are with God. You kind of look at your life and say, who am I when it really doesn't matter if I do or don't do this? You know, who knows when you're driving down the car and you're taking that second, third, fourth look at somebody in lust? You know, nobody saw you. It was just you and your car. You know, but that is when God says, this is when, I really this is when I'm testing you. When you're alone, nobody sees it. Nobody knows what you're doing. That's when your real who you are comes out. And that's when we, as our individuals, need to look at ourselves and say, who am I in those moments? What am I watching on TV that I probably shouldn't watch? What movies do I watch? What music am I listening to that is not building up God? You know, what am I, what am I entertaining myself with? What do I do in my spare time? These are what he's talking about. Who is faithful in the littlest things is what God's looking for. Because it's pretty easy to, to do what's right when everybody's looking and you know everybody's looking. Now, most people will try to do what's right when people are looking. You know, but that plays into our pride. We just don't want to look bad. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't want to look bad, so I'm going to, everybody's really looking at me, I'm going to tell the truth in this situation because everybody will say how good a, and truthful a person I am. But I just lied to the, to the person who was asking, you know, uh, talking to on the phone saying I'm not you know I'm not interested in anything you know I'm not never buy anything or whatever you might tell these people or many parents will do to their kids they teach your kids to tell the truth and then the phone rings especially in the old days when you had to answer the phone uh, tell them I'm not here yeah you've been telling your kids to tell the truth and then you tell them to lie to the person on the phone right. we are being changed to be like him and it's him that does the changing he indwells us and he changes who we are by crucifying our flesh and then he comes out. And hopefully you've seen that as you walk more with God, you're seeing more of him coming out of you, not because you're saying, okay, what should I do? You know, there used to be the movement that was really big, you know, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I go, and that's a great idea, but he has to become, the real part is he has to become so real to you that you do what Jesus would do without having to think about it. And I go, I mean, it was a wonderful, it's a great idea, it's a great thought, but you know, we gotta get to the place where he has changed us so much that we act like him. Okay, what should I do in this situation? Yeah, yeah. You've got about three seconds to figure out what you're doing. Okay, what would Jesus do? And it's way too late already. Because usually in most situations, critical situations, you don't have a lot of time to think. 
Uh, when that person standing in front of you asking what, you're, what, you, what are you going to do in this situation, that's not a time to go into a 30, 40 second dilemma in my mind. Okay, what, what, is the right, what would Jesus do in this situation? It, it has to become so real to us. And you hit it on the head. The more we're in God's word, the more we're studying his word, the more it's going to come out as an automatic, oh, yes, this is, this is what Jesus would do, and I'm going to do it. And because it comes out fast. And remember, I've said many times, because we are flesh, the flesh is going to be the response right off the bat. Okay? The question is, how fast is God's answer on top of the flesh? Hopefully it's seconds. You know, if, when, you're, when you're right there, you get down to just, it's almost instantaneously. It's so, so much instantaneous that you think you thought his thought first. And my example is somebody smacks you across the face, you know, slaps you across the face. Your first instinct is usually to smack them back. Okay? That may or may not be the best thing to do. But, you know, how fast does God's reaction come, come in on you? You know, that is what's important for you. How fast is his response? You know, you're driving down the road and somebody cuts you off and your, your, your first initial response is to hit, the, you know, rear, rear in their car. Well, hopefully you don't do that because that does a lot of damage to both cars and it's not worth it in the long run. They might have gotten the ticket because of what they did, but it's not worth it. The idea is, who are we when we're alone? And our car or our house are great opportunities of what are we like when we're in that place by ourselves? Do we let loose with the flesh, which shows us that we're still very fleshly, or do we have many opportunities that God comes out and we say, oh, I'm, I'm growing, I'm changing. <laughs> and this is, this is the most important part. If you're growing spiritually, you can be able to very confidently say, I am saved. You may not be growing by leaps and bounds, but if you're progressing on a steady direction toward Christ, then you can say, I know Jesus and he is changing me. If you see very little to no change in you after years, then you might have to say, what's going on? Do I know him? Am I spending enough time in his word and with his people to be changed? Because remember, we are changed by the washing of the words of God. If we don't fill our mind with God's word, we will never be changed. It's just the way it is, we'll stay flesh. Because God uses his word. And this is when you start talking to people who have been a quote-unquote Christian for a long time and they say really dumb things. You, you, you go, well, where's that found in the Bible? I don't know. Just, I, it's, I heard it somewhere. Yeah. And this is something we've got to be careful of. Many times I challenge people, where did you find that in the Bible? You know, they'll say something, they'll say it dogmatically. It says this. I go, where? Show me where it says it because I want to know. Now, if you're a teacher around me, get ready for it because I'll ask teachers all the time, you know, whether I believe it or not. I want to know that they know where it's from because it's important that a teacher can defend what they're, what they're teaching. We want to be able to be able to say, this is what is going on. Let's go find it. Let's, let's find the verse. You know, and I don't expect necessarily for a teacher to tell me right that moment where it's found, but I'll ask them later on, where, did you find out where that verse was? And the more we're in the Word of God, the more we will remember these things, and the more we'll be able to tie things together. And this is what's so important, is to know that we know. Because I share God with so many people, and they'll tell me, yes, I'm a believer. Well, what do you believe? Most of them can't tell me what they believe, much less that they are a believer, that they are a Christian. 
How do you get to heaven? Well, I do, I do a lot of good things. Well, that's not going to get you to heaven. And it's really sad because there are so many people who will tell you they are a Christian and then tell you, turn around and tell you they're going to get to heaven by doing good works. It is very scary to see this because they're not going to get to heaven with that attitude. That's not how you get to heaven. You have to accept Jesus Christ's sacrifice for you and, and give up your, your works for his works. And then he comes in, indwells us, and changes us. Living the Christian life is the easiest thing in the world because all you do is give up and let God do it through you. Now, saying that as easy is one thing because it isn't really easy to give up. We all struggle with the giving up part, you know, the surrendering part. And this is one I've said over and over. I've lived long enough, seen enough changes. We struggle to surrender. When we get done surrendering and God works through us when we've surrendered, we kind of go around kicking ourselves like, why did I wait so long? It was so easy to do. And yet we'll fight with God and fight with God and fight with God and let me try to figure this out, God, and I'm going to work at it and work at it and work at it. And God says, just stop. <laughs> let me crucify your desires and put my desires in you. And then when we allow that to happen, the victory is easy. What did I just say? It's not easy until you do it and then you realize that it was easier, it was e how easy it was. Believe me, I've struggled in many areas and still struggle in many areas. But when I get to the other side, when I finally get it through my thick head and my, my stubbornness to surrender, I get to the other side and I'm going, that was so easy, God did it all. Yeah, I mean, we're always going to struggle. Yes. Until you surrender and God takes that out of your that area out of your life. And then he'll take you to the next level and you'll struggle on the new level. And I understand because I still struggle in many areas and I'm I'm not struggling as long. I, I give up a lot faster nowadays after I've walked with God for forty five years. <laughs> you know, I, I've learned to kind of get a little smarter and surrender a little easier. <laughs> but I still fight as much as anybody else. Because there's always this, well, God, if I give this up, the whole, my whole life is going to fall apart if I, give, if I don't do this. And God says, I'm the one that's in control. I, I, I'm comfortable in the old ways. There's some of that, too. At least I know it. It's not working, but I know it. But again, as, when you start seeing how much he wants to care for you, the problem is most of us don't understand how much God wants to care for us and help us. We all seem to sit back and go, well, if I don't do this, it's not going to happen. Jesus is, says he's our shepherd. And I've shared with you some stories. Sheep are dumb. I don't know if you all know how dumb sheep are, but sheep are dumb. Yeah. Well, they follow a leader who doesn't know where he's going, he or she's going in the first place. They get away from a group and they, you know, and I told you about my friend having sheep that had a little tiny hill, not even a big hill, little thing. You know, the, the, the sheep that just stood up on the you kind of stood on the hill, would see the other sheep, gets to the other side of the hill and would panic because it couldn't see the other sheep. And he would have to go out all, you know, frequently when I would go to his house and he'd have to help his little sheep around the hill to see the rest of the sheep. David said he leads his beside still water. I've been told uh, through the different books that I read that if a sheep sees a leaf floating by in the water, it'll end up falling over because it just follows the, follows the leaf. Okay? When God says we are sheep, he is not complimenting us. Okay? He is saying, you are so stupid, you need me, 
But then he goes, I'm your shepherd. I want to do what's best for you. We need to really start understanding God wants to do what's best for us. He wants to protect us. He wants to take and drag us around the hill. To, he wants to take us to the, 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 the water. He wants to anoint our injuries with oil and saying, okay, you, were, you got yourself in trouble, but here's your, here's, your med, here's your medication to keep it from getting infected and, and just keep, stay with me. He carries the sheep back to the, to the flock. This is the God that we worship who wants to do these things for us. And even as Christians, we have this tendency to think of God being angry with us all the time when we do wrong. You know, and yes, he's going to be disappointed when we do wrong, as any, any person who loves us is. You know, the shepherd gets a little frustrated every once in a while with a lamb that keeps running off on his own and says, you know, get over here with the rest of the sheep. <laughs> you know, come stay with the rest of the sheep. Quit running away. But he doesn't say, well, you just stay over there and get eaten by the wolves because you keep running off. I'm just going to let you go do what you want. He cares enough for us and wants to care for us. And we need to get that attitude that God wants to do good things for us. And, you know, it's bad enough when Christians do because the world has this picture of God, you know, with lightning bolts or a hammer just waiting for us to do something wrong to, to crush us. The sad thing is I have met so many Christians that have that attitude toward God. Can't do anything for God. He's just waiting to destroy me. But they're basing that on like Old Testament stuff. Mm, I would disagree. They, they're basing it on a mis misunderstandings of the Old Testament. God is just as loving in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament, but his holiness was strong. His grace came out all over the place. But they don't have that conception. Because they don't know the word. The problem is most people take whatever they hear other people say about God. What I have found in my talking to people even with Christians, is the majority of people have never read the Word of God. Hardly at all. All right? It's sad to even know that most Christians have never read the whole Bible. And the average Christian does not even read the Bible every day, much less do any study in the Word. And then they don't understand why they're not growing and why they have the misconceptions of God and why they don't, know, don't have any joy in God because they're not spending time knowing Him. You know, you get into God's word and you start seeing God for who he is. And you start seeing his love and his compassion and his care. And how often he repeats himself because we're so dumb we can't understand it the first time. And he keeps repeating it over and over and over again, just showing you how much he loves us. You know, we need to keep these things in mind. The more we're in his word, the more we're being changed, the easier it gets to surrender to him. The easier it gets to trust him. And then the longer we walk with him and the more we see him doing in our own life, it gets easier to trust him because he's, he's been faithful in the past. The more we get to know the testimonies of other people, we see that he's faithful in their lives. And it's like, oh, wow, God hasn't changed. You know, and this is why testimonies and sharing with other believers is so important. When God does something good in your life, tell other people about it because other people need to hear that God is still doing things today because he really is. That's why I encourage, read the Bible, read the biographies of good Christians, share with other people what God's doing with, with you so that people understand that God is good all the time. He's always good. He's always got what's best in mind for us. Even when he's disciplining us, he's got what's good, best for us in mind. Because that discipline is supposed to make it so that we do not want to do something again. 
Yeah. That is the whole purpose of discipline. When we disciplined our kids, the discipline should have been enough that when they thought about doing it again, they go, no, I didn't like the consequences. And God does that with us as well. He makes sure that the consequences are bad enough that we go, well, last time I did this, I, I suffered for this way or that way. I don't think I want to do this again. So that uh, kind of falls under the, the fear of the Lord. Is I don't think we think enough about that. You, you know, just like, because we do something at like a, you know, we do this just like at a, a snap of a finger. You know? Which is why we have to know him, and if we don't know him, he'll institute fear. He'll institute the fact that he's going to punish us. And I've seen where dogs can, dogs will do one thing one time, and, and, and to a good example, this, dogs learn like fast, but I don't think we learn that fast. That's why we're called sheep and not dogs. <laughs> No, sheep is not a compliment for anybody who knows sheep. It's because sheep will keep doing the same thing wrong, will keep doing, you know, over and over again and don't seem to learn. At least I haven't had a lot of experience with sheep, but the few sheep I've had experience with, they're pretty dumb. And everything I've read about shepherds and sheep, you know, talking about sheep, uh, sheep are dumb. And when God says that we're like sheep, he's basically saying that we're so stupid that we'll keep doing the same thing wrong over and over again. And you know what? We all know that that's exactly what we do. We keep doing the same thing over and over and again until God actually can crucify our flesh and say, let's get you victory in this area. So we look at this and just say, God is wanting to do good things for us. And we've got to understand that the more we start understanding that, the more we are going to quickly respond to God when he says to do something, even when it doesn't look like it's the best thing to do. You know, Tithing is like that. God says, give me your tithe. Give me 10% of what you can't live on, and, and he'll bless us. And, and the good news is my practice has been for many, many years to give 10%. God's always blessed it. Now, I've never gotten rich, which is obvious, because I don't have, all, I don't have a big mansion anywhere. God meets my needs. I don't have to worry about it. Now, he doesn't promise us he's going to make us rich and prosperous. He just says, I'm going to meet your needs. He teaches us, even, even when we are... Even when we are misbehaving and we are bad and things are, are bad, he utilizes those events to teach us things. So we've got to keep in mind that God is wanting to do good for us. Now, he will let us do wrong things. He will let us suffer the consequences, but he'll turn those things to some kind of good result. Maybe it's just to teach us that when you touch the hot stove, it's hot, don't touch it again. You know, uh, after you've touched it 50 times and realize that it's, not, not something you want to touch anymore. But you know, this is what he's saying. He shall make him ruler over all. Um, but in verse 48 he says, But if that evil servant say in his heart, The Lord delays his coming, and he shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and eat and drink with drunkards, the Lord of that servant shall come in the day when he looks not for him, in the hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him a portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in other words, if you want to be disobedient to God, you want to say, well, he's not coming. I can do whatever I want, and you're going to do all kinds of wrong things. Maybe you're not one of his children in the first place. But if you are, he's still going to punish you and discipline you on this. And we need to be careful. You know, people have said, you know, God is tarrying. You know, why, why, why wait? But, you know, we want to be very careful with this and not be disobedient. Is, is the phrase weeping in the issue of teeth? Yes, which is why these are probably not servants, true servants. These are people that are making their decision not to do what he wants. 
weeping and gnashing of teeth is, is that the picture of hell has multiple pictures. It has the fire, the eternal flame, and that seems to be an e actual eternal flame because uh, when Jesus told the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, uh, the rich man was in torment and heat, and he just, want, he just wanted a drop of water for his tongue because he was so, so much in tor torment. The weeping and gnashing of teeth, another picture is, of hell is the idea that your conscience will burn for eternity. Now, your conscience burning is worse than the burning of the fire because every time you rejected Jesus Christ, you will be reminded in hell for eternity. You're going to be reminded that you're there because you chose to be there. You'll be reminded of your sins when you, when you, when you chose to do wrong and not, not right. You know, that is an awful picture. And can, you want to picture this idea that knowing that you're in this torment and knowing crystal clarity that you're there because you chose it. For eternity. Eternity is a long time to be reminded that you're there because you chose it. You know, and think about the time you've had your conscience pricked the hardest as a Christian to turn to God. Think about that lasting for eternity and not being able to repent. They will not have the chance to repent. They will gnash their teeth. They will be weeping because they are there for eternity and it's going to be crystal clear to them that they were they deserve to be. Too late once you're dead, you're going to be stuck with your decision. Very critical, and this is what should motivate us hell is not going to be a pleasant place in any stretch of the imagination. Even without the burning flames, your conscience bothering you for eternity would be bad enough. I am in this place because I deserve it. And then you put on the suffering on top of it. Whatever suffering, you know, whatever spiritual suffering that means for, for a fiery place that doesn't burn you completely, just tortures you for eternity. And I believe when the rich man looked up that he was looking into heaven, I personally believe, and that I have, other than that one story, I can't prove it, that in hell they will see what, the, that they, are, what they could have had if they had chosen God. Almost a one-way mirror type thing. That's just my personal opinion. It's, it's worth what it is, and I take it from the story of Lazarus where the rich man looks up and sees Lazarus at ease. Uh, so... And it could be totally wrong. It's bad enough. You've got your conscience. And if you can then see what you're missing, that would be even worse. When something goes wrong or when we feel like we're being disciplined, our first thing needs to be, am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting what I deserve? Have I, have I done something that deserves punishment? If so, then I repent and endure, my, endure the consequences. If I look at it and say, God, I just can't think of anything that, that this is, then we look, okay, maybe I'm being tested like Job was. Am I going to be faithful? And then you just say, okay, God, give me the strength to be able to endure this and see what he's going to teach you out of the deal. You know, I feel sorry for Job. Job had a really hard time, and the testimony before he did it was that he hated evil. What he got is not deserved. And his friends sure didn't help him out. Yeah, and his friends didn't help out. You know, he had wonderful, yeah. Uh, yeah. wonderful counselors, wonderful friends, yeah. wonderful Christians, whatever, you want to, whatever term you want to use. But, you know, how many times has we as Christians gone up to somebody and been a friend like Job had. You know, you must have really been, you know, what, what did you do to make yourself have such a rough life? And maybe, maybe you deserved it, maybe you don't, but we need to be more loving, more edifying, lifting up, and helping one another. That is something that is so easy for us to do, is to judge one another. You know, and you know, one other place, the person we're not supposed to judge is even ourselves. 
That's we need to be careful not to judge ourselves. Well, no, conscience is different. Now, conscience is not part of judging. Conscience is the Holy Spirit pricking you to say repent. We, because we know who we are, are usually harder on ourselves when we fall than anybody else possibly could be. And this is where we have to start learning. The more we can recognize it's under the blood and forgive it and forgive ourselves for what we did. And the reason we have a hard time forgiving ourselves is we know what we did and we know why we did it in most cases. It's not, you know, even though we might tell somebody, and I just found myself in the bar drinking this thing, we know the series of decisions that led us to the bar, you know, that put us into the drunken state because we did some really dumb things. You know, so then we have a really hard time. We might be testifying that I just found myself there, but it, deep down we know we made a series of decisions that took us there, even though we might not admit it to others. But I'm just saying, you know, and I just happened to pick that one, but it could be any number of sins that we go, and I've heard this, and I just, I don't know how it happened. I just found myself in this situation. But we need to be careful because we deep down know that, you know, we made decisions that put us there, that we had opportunities to not make those decisions. And that usually means that we're harder on ourselves because we're going, well, yeah, I deserve all this punishment. And because I deserve it, I'm just going to wallow in it and, and let God really make me feel bad. And God's saying, get over it. Get out of the sloth of despair and get back on the walk. And we have to remember just that. God has forgiven it. And if Satan is trying to bring it back up into your, your, your memory, say, it's gone. It is gone. It's forgiven. But it is such a special thing to know. And when you can really grab hold of that truth and say, I am forgiven and it is gone. And you know what the most blessed thing is? God doesn't remember it. He put it under the blood and he no longer remembers the sin. When it's under the blood, he doesn't remember it. He's made a royal decree. He remembers everything and knows everything. But in heaven, he's made a decree that if it's under the blood, he will not remember it. You know how many sins are under, how many of your sins are under the blood? All of them. them. And all the ones coming up are under the blood. You have consequences for disobedience, but God says you are forgiven. When Jesus died on the cross, all sin was placed upon him and he paid the price of sin. But you still got to repent. You, you repent for your fellowship's sake. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and justice to forgive us of all unrighteousness is not a heaven or hell decision for Christians. It is a fellowship relationship. Correct. It doesn't because there's consequence for any sin you do. You will pay for the you will pay the consequence for as far as your day to day life because it cleanses your conscience before God to to repent. Anything is just you turn away. Turn away and turn back to God. That's what. So people who say I'm sorry and keep and know that they're going to do the same sin tomorrow haven't repented. They haven't even asked for forgiveness, technically, because they, they go, God, I'm sorry I did this, and tomorrow I'm going to do the same thing all over again, and I already know that I'm going to do the same thing, so God, forgive me for this one. No, that's not, that's not confessing. It's not, it's not repenting. That's actually a sign that you might have a problem with God <laughs> if you're using it as a license to sin. I'm saved, so I can do whatever I want. Is not, then you have to start saying, am I really saved? Because... That should not be the attitude of somebody who's saved. Repent is to turn away from your sin and turn toward God. Confession in the word of God, especially the New Testament, is the word homologeo, 
in Greek, and it means to say the same thing as. If I'm confessing that I have sinned to God, I'm yeah. confessing that I agree with God that what I did is a sin. Repent is to turn away from your sin and turn to God. Oh. Confession is to say that, yes, it's a sin. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I don't think it's really that bad. Uh, it really wasn't that big a sin. That's not confession in any way, shape, or form because confession is to say, God, I agree with you. You know, people may not think this is a big deal, but I agree with you that this is a sin. And then I repent and I turn away from that sin and turn back toward God. Because the unpardonable sin before God, the only thing that's going to send somebody to hell is the rejection of Jesus Christ. God wants you to be who you are. I mean, you know, too many people pretend to be something that are not with God and he knows who they are. Well, sad thing is he knows our heart. <laughs> yeah, because he says our heart is deceitfully wicked and above all things, who can know it? And he's the one that knows it. But he knows who he has made us to be as a new creation in Christ. But there is a point where we do. God does want us to say, God, I am sorry for doing this. Help me to give me the strength not to do it again. I'm repenting and turning to you. So it is important because just saying, well, God, I know you're unforgiven, that can lead you to some bad areas too. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again. You realize within yourself. I would actually say, I'm sorry, help me not to do it again because I would, I'm not going to tell God I'm not going to do it again. Because if I say I'm not going to do it again, I can almost guarantee you I'm going to do it again. I'm sorry, why did I do that? <laughs> you know, in like a second to do it, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. <laughs> But you know, that's a really good thing when we get that conviction that fast and respond, that's a good sign that God is changing who we are inside. But if you think back, you know, go back a few years when you could sin without even knowing that you, or caring that you've sinned and maybe for days or hours or weeks or months. And now, and as you get closer to God, it's like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Okay, God, I am really sorry. And it comes... And that's where we're supposed to be. That means we're becoming closer and closer to God so that we recognize. It's automatic. Yeah. yeah, we recognize that we're sinning. And the idea is hopefully we get to the place where we can recognize it before we sin. But we're going to close in prayer. You know, but the one thing I am really enjoying watching is as you guys are growing and seeing these changes and seeing your lives changed. You know, the small part I have is just being a teacher and bringing God's word in. But just to watch God work in lives is so wonderful. And to see how people are changing and growing is a well, wonderful I, thing. I Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for how much you're changing lives and that you really do care for us in a really mighty way. We ask you to bless us as we go about your business this week. Give us opportunities to share you. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.